0: I think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants, but are both boys and girls, because I've seen them. women and men. Hello. This is episode seventy-three of the Boys in Short Pants, the seventy-fourth episode. I'm Laurent Carbonneau, and I'm joined today, as
1: always, by Aiden Rainbow.
0: And we have returning. Uh, this is your triple crown now, uh, Mr. <laughs> David, Mr. 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 Doctor David Moskrob. First and only. First and only, yes, uh, of his name. Uh, welcome. You're you had a book out recently. Still out. It's still out. Actually, they, they haven't have pulled it from shelves. decency no. indecency. It no. no. hasn't been recalled. No, Has, it made it through the census. Hasn't killed any consumers yet. I mean, I are working fine. None that I've none that I've heard of. Well, that's very good. That's yeah. that's, that's a positive one. start. Step one. Um. Yeah. So you wrote. Unlike a
2: book. that woman, by the, not to digress right off the. That's you, kind of what we do. do here. You see <laughs> this this thing on Twitter where this this woman in the U.S snitched on some poor transit worker who was eating yeah that was shitty right. it was and just she lost her book deal well the distributor started pulling the book brutal yeah
1: wow yeah sorry what was the transit worker doing eating, eating lunch on transit
0: on the train which you're not or trying to, be, to do the candy on the train yeah. trying to be a human oh ah. yeah oh this woman snitched on her that's pretty bad eh Anyway, that's that's uh, so anyways, that'd be a lesson to you about. I'm not a snitch, so this book's not going anywhere. David Mosscrop, not a snitch, not a snitch, <laughs> not a snitch. There no, we not. go. Um, so the book is called Too Dumb for Democracy Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones, uh, You've... from Goose Lane, which is I just I love that. It sounds so whimsical, and it's uh, Atlantic Canada. Oh, is it? It sounds like a street where you'd buy
2: pillows. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't oh, the, we're gonna have the sort pita of whimsical crowd, We're gonna London. have the pita crowd. Just you know, they don't. Yeah, you know, that's
1: fine. They're not happy. Well, anyway. they, they pluck the goose and then they they let the feathers grow back. I'm sure the they, book they is actually the, the goose. Book's
2: actually goose skin. Ooh, is it goose skin book? No, I, I, like, I thought book. that was just my. No, copy. no, the wonder no, is put me to sleep so fast. One hundred
1: percent
0: goose skin. <laughs> you can eat in a pinch. You can eat it. Oh, no, that's good. Goose is actually really tough. I'll be honest. I, in, a, I'm not saying, in a pinch, You brought, brought little real salt real? packets in yeah. order to season it properly. <laughs> yeah, it's fine.
2: It's yeah, it's go- out of Atlantic Canada, out of New- out of uh, Fredericton. Oh, I love is it. this. this an of-
1: Irving product? Is that what you're telling me?
2: Yeah, it's actually part of the Navy. <laughs> 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 that's actually our. That's one of our frigates that you all can right. <laughs> Not it cost hundred twelve million dollars.
1: <laughs> I'm not be surprised. Yeah, yeah. It took forty
2: years to. It's yeah. like this technically qualifies as a battleship for tax yeah. purposes. Yeah, that's right. We're gonna send it to the north to protect us against Denmark.
0: There we it's go. Well, to be fair, the Danes—you you can never be sure with them. You know, <laughs> better safe than sorry. Um, so, what's the book about, David? I mean, we both read it, so I mean, we, we actually know.
2: But. but, but for the listeners who haven't, but but intend to. It's about why I make bad political decisions And how we make better ones
0: Oh, just like on the cover So
2: the, the cover <laughs> I'm not misleading you So the cover has a question mark on it It's Too Dumb for Democracy
0: Yeah, I should use and, it as
2: a coaster But here we are you, Well, I mean I, You should see what I use it for but, It works on contingency <laughs> 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 No, money down So it is uh, you know, The question mark's doing a lot of heavy lifting And it's to say that you know, are we too dumb for democracy? And The answer is no. So a better
1: just love lot of headline strikes. You again. blow that in the prologue, basically. Yeah, I'm, I was very not... disappointed. I thought it'd be a twelve chapter page turner. No, as to you know, whether or not we were in fact too dumb. Th- so there, there is literature that suggests that we actually do like spoilers, believe it or not. So
2: there is some, there's some literature that contends that you know you might say you don't like spoilers, but it's actually uh, it makes you less anxious watching a show when you know it's going to happen or reading a book. So I, I blow the the plot in the at the beginning, but it's like one of those episodes of a show where you see you see the end first and it works okay. back yeah that's always yeah. fun people well, love well, those episodes yeah something. but you forget by the end that you know so it, the the thrill of the of the read or the watch is maintained but it allows me to to say the answer is, is no we're not too dumb for democracy but we're encouraged to be and then the book unfolds from there why yes. are we and how can we do better
0: and there's a mix of sort of neuropsych stuff mm-hmm. um which responsible I, yes which i amused myself by reading it out in the jordan peterson voice a little bit but of course i, <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I really just for wanna, fun I just really for fun really want to hear <laughs> do
2: that i would like to see you go from jordan peterson to elizabeth holmes
0: that would actually be quite a fun challenge. Yeah our, yeah, our ears would start bleeding. Yeah, I'd have to do it another time. Just I'm not, I I'd need some material in front of <laughs> okay, me to do it, but I'm happy to do it another time. Um, that does sound very funny. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's a little bit of the, the sort of neuroscience angle about mm-hmm. how we sort of can structure decision-making better and how the current structure of it in society makes <laughs> us kind of... That was the intern jumping off a shelf, by the way, for anyone listening. <laughs> Nothing to be concerned about um he is uh he's a cat as many of you are aware um yeah sorry so yes neuroscience how it uh structures decision making yeah. how our society kind of structures it to be well structures it in a sense that our brains are not well equipped to handle our political environment in a yeah. lot of ways um there was a quite striking anecdote in your prologue when you kind of talk about what led you down the path of using neuroscience to talk about politics and do you mind relating that just i think it's it's a fascinating one and also i think many people who've done grad school have been there oh yeah it's uh <laughs> oh yes it is. is
2: when i was doing my master's here at the university of ottawa in 2000 something seven something like that. I was so sick of studying what I was studying that I just desperately didn't want to read anything more about it. And it was democratic deliberation. Mm-hmm. So I had this book on my shelf from Antonio DiMazio that I bought at Chapters because it was $5. Like, I will buy anything that is $5. I don't care what it is. If it's $5, I will buy. I consider that to be free. I just buy it. Because <laughs> you never know. Especially if it's a book. So I bought this remaindered book. And so I picked it up one day and started reading it and because it, it had nothing to do with deliberation or politics. It was about neuroscience about joy, sorrow, and the emotional brain. And then I get a couple pages in, and DiMazzio starts talking about political institutions and how we need to design our political and social institutions in ways that compensates for, understands, responds to, complements uh, our neuropsychology. And I was like, oh my lord. I had to change everything. It was like this moment of awakening. And so I started digging into this stuff, and I thought, I wanted to study this instead. And my supervisor talked me off the ledge he's like maybe we should just work some of this in rather than starting from the start because you want to get out of here yeah that,
0: that was very irresponsible on your advice hugely part. he was wonderful <laughs> and so
2: I said okay fine and I wrote a little bit of that into the master's thesis and then when I, I went away to Korea for a couple of years came back and started doing my PhD and, and worked on initially some neuroscience stuff but then more more psychology because it's a little easier to do them uh, far cheaper sure and the research was a little far ahead Compared to the sort of fMRI neuroscience research. Okay. So the book ended up being a compendium. So this book is the is the product of years of thinking about this stuff, and there's some a little bit of neuroscience, and then some behavioral psychology, political psychology, and it's that it is the, the result of that journey that started in 2007. Very by ahead. accident.
1: Yeah, as many good journeys do. I had very much the opposite experience in my uh, undergraduate, where I started doing psychology and poli sci. And then I immediately realized that doing the psych was a complete mistake and I should never do it. Really? Why? Because going from learning about poli topics, philosophy, whatever it was, to learning about the parts of the brain and why yeah. hummingbirds, how hummingbirds navigate in their environments, how children learn sounds, etc., I never found to be very relatable. Yes. Um, and a lot of it served as like pre-med, so I'm sitting aside, beside the pre-med medical kids and I'm like, I was just doing Marx or Plato or whatever it was. And now, like, how is the brain being sliced? Like, what the hell are we talking I about? Know. Well, so I, the, the way I did it was I never had a classroom-based
2: psychology or neuroscience yeah. training. I never took a class on, on, well, I did political psychology, but I never took a class on psychology outside of the political science department. I never studied neuroscience in a classroom. I did it by talking to neuroscientists and talking to psychologists reading the things they told me to read and having I had an app that used to have the brain so I did the sort of because I was just curious but I had this app and you could basically dissect the brain with this app amygdala uh, yeah this, it's all that the, uh, yeah the amygdala and blingada yeah but I uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so I I didn't get you know I could do whatever I want and so you know in some sense I relied on the psychologists and the neuroscientists telling me what I should be paying attention to but they never wanted me to go talk about think about read about hummingbirds, so I
0: gotta skip all of that. <laughs> Which is good. You get right to the good stuff. Frankly not that relevant to this book. If not that for, I know if of if you're looking for hummingbird content, I have to book. say you're not gonna find <laughs> it no, here. It's not your book. Yeah. Um are hummingbirds too dumb for democracy? Probably. I mean I don't really know what the concept would mean to them, frankly. It would be a I don't like know like they're meaningfully guy meaningfully not I never took the class. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's, yeah, why don't you tell <laughs> the us the hummingbird guy here. so to launch into it a little bit, there I really I have really no science background. I took one psych class for my distribution requirements in undergrad. But I do have a, a pretty good uh, sort of democratic theory background from, from my history stuff. Um, so one thing that you give a sort of potted history of, of the kind of idea of liberal democracy at one point, mm-hmm. uh, which was good though there's one thing in here because i think clearly you're coming at this from a kind of civic republican tradition is yeah, that and, and, fair to say uh, yes
2: uh, civic republican
0: and deliberative democrat yeah so one name i was really surprised to not see in that kind of potted history of liberal democracy is james harrington who i had yes so i had to leave out uh, pettit as well yes pettit more much more modern obviously but harrington just does the kind of like granddaddy of that sort of tradition
2: yeah uh, yes and I mean there are other people that I thought of along the way I mean Habermas barely right. features Hoverma, um, uh, no Rawls although yeah. Rawls is, is and
0: Rawls pretty... I think there's a, there's a veil of Rawls hanging over a lot of this book in one <laughs> yes way. well yeah he haunts us still he does the ghost of Rawls
2: but I I mostly left as many thinkers out as I could and mm-hmm. you notice that even when I have to talk about Immanuel Kant because I had to I was very careful about how, I t- and, I, and I tried to make it human, because, you know, he, Kant is inherently is that, yes, boring, yes. In yes. and having, you know, reading Kant is even worse, although as a person he was actually more interesting than you think, and like, I get into that very briefly in the book. He was a the human wristwatch. Yes, but also a bit of a drinker, Yep, which is interesting, and it's incredible.
0: He kept his uh, his schedule despite his sort yeah. of, yeah, yeah. it's impressive.
2: Yeah, he he would have made a good parliamentarian.
0: Probably, yeah. yeah. Very also yeah, people who are easy to schedule—that's that's that's your dream, frankly. Every staffer's dream. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, be there at this time. Great, we'll do. (laughs) But those
2: those absences, you know, because I think anyone with a political theory background or reading this will see all kinds of absences were deliberate. They're conspicuous Mm -hmm. by by design, and that's because I didn't want to to write uh, a book about political theory. Sure. And as much as it is what I studied and what what I love. I wanted to write a book that anyone could pick up and and read through and have some takeaways. Yeah. And the sort of the the broad ideas are embedded in there. Sure. The only time I mention anyone is when I have to reference something specific. That, yeah. That I. You know. Well, yeah.
0: I was I was just surprised because there was there was a fair bit on. Well, you know, not necessarily like a ton on each, but there was like a you know coverage of of the sort of French Enlightenment, etc. Yeah. And I find that those are kind of thinkers that have less to say to what you're talking about yeah. than Harrington or Pettit or. Yeah.
2: Oh, would, did, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, in a different book, if this was... So this is a trade press book. If it had been an academic book, university press book, I would have gotten into all of that. Because sure. I would have made the case from the civic republican angle, I think, a little more aggressively. Because yeah. I would have tried to make the case for why people should do it yeah. out of duty or out of a need to preserve non-domination. Right, whatever a what? instrumental
0: republican. Exactly. Yeah.
2: But... I was like, well, I mean, now I'm gonna to have to have a chapter on that, and then it's too long, and then it's gonna read it, you know. So it really was about like, let's just get to the heart of the matter. Sure. And I'll, and the, I pride myself on the book being mostly readable. I think it is because there's an awful lot. It, of people- I will
0: attest. I mean, it it is a super quick read, super brief. It's meant to be, right? Yeah, it's it's meant- not, and I will also throw in like, it is really what, like it's very fun to read. I oh, think you. your authorial okay. voice is very is very chatty and, yeah, and genial yeah. it's it's a very which is what i wanted and it's, it's nice to hear dream. that because
2: i thought look you know there's a number of people who write books about democracy that are just utterly inaccessible Headed, for instance yes <laughs> it's well, really dry <laughs> I, mean, I can i can get into these books because it's work but my lord i mean if you're going to write books about democracy especially the trade press books it'd be nice yeah. if they were accessible by people
0: yeah and you would think that as someone who takes the idea of democracy seriously that you would try to write accessible books but <laughs> You'd be surprised,
2: you know, again, if the a trade, you know, different university press versus trade press. I mean, I used to, I tell the story about my dad was a mechanic and, and if he would talk to other mechanics about their cars or trucks, he would use language that I Oh, the find, jargon. Yeah, is yeah I had no idea. Yeah. But he could explain to me how a transmission worked. In fact, yeah. uh, I, I learned how to drive a standard before I went to Mongolia. We drove years ago to the Mongol Rally, drove from London to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and it was a standard. And I learned from my dad how to drive a manual transmission car ahead of that trip. And I couldn't understand it until he explained the theory behind it. I remember sitting there trying to understand, why can't I get this to work? I can't, should my body just know? And it's like, here's what's happening when you're pressing and depressing these pedals. And then I got it.
1: That's the first thing I do when I start to teach someone standard is about the clutch plates. Yeah. And if you just jam the clutch plates together, like momentum dictates that they're going to freeze and they're going to stop. Or if you ease, ease them, them together, That's they start to pick up speed together de- and you're de- able easing.
2: to. Well, and that was what unlocked it for me. But then I realized, like, oh, right, you can explain this stuff. And the same is true of any academic discipline. And I hold that. You know, if an academic or an expert of any sort can't explain to a smart, non-expert what
0: they're talking then about, they you know, probably don't yeah, know exactly. It well. I mean, yeah. I truly believe that. Yeah, I think that's 100% true. And with the exception of maybe like two or three just incredibly esoteric topics, like I think. Yes. Like, yeah. I mean,
2: there's some things we just don't have the concepts for. Sure. Or, or a- anything or, with quantum this is tough to... If, yeah. if
1: Justin Trudeau can explain quantum science oh. to... Oh. Quantum computing. Oh, no. yeah. oh my God. <laughs> Didn't he get of of that wrong?
0: <laughs> he did kind of get some... <laughs> no, nah, yeah. He was close enough for jazz. It, yeah, Basically, yeah. Yeah, enough most people said whatever. it was like a B, a B plus like, yeah. Which, you know, uh, that's the country season, season D's make degrees as they say Um, so sorry uh, that yeah, was so, a, so I skipped over yeah. a lot of it because
2: here's the thing I, I cut that so the second chapter is my favorite chapter it's the chapter of the rise and fall of democracy I had to cut that by 4,000 words <laughs> it was a chapter I spent the longest on it's a chapter I enjoyed writing the most I mean I wish I could have written sure. that book on top of this one and so
0: uh, that all would have gone into yeah. that so I think we'll, we'll circle back around to, to civil republicanism a little later in the conversation. But so, I, Tim, do you have any any questions about the sort of the, the neuroscientific kind of first half of the book?
1: No, um, I think I think I'm going to reserve most of my comments for the process. Um, uh Oh, he's looking at me. Process <laughs> fetishism, but your your, in, <laughs> your your inclination towards process yes. and the deliberative democracy, yes, particularly your prescription. Yes, a good old um, Tory idea, really. But I'll leave that for now. If okay. You want to
2: go so we'll, the middle.
0: well we'll launch into the the back half. So so really I think you can think of this this book as as in three parts. The first part is yes. kind of setting up. It's the, the prologue. Here's what I'm talking about, which you would expect in a book. The second half, the second part, as we've kind of talked about, is the neuroscientific stuff, and I guess we'll we'll dwell a little bit on that because I do want to get some of your thoughts on sure. that before we actually. I know I just said we would launch into that, but we won't. Uh, and then the <laughs> third part is um, the sort of social institutional. Uh, context that structures decision-making and how we can improve that part, which I think is more, is easier to do in many cases than, well, it's easier and harder, I guess, than the neuroscientific stuff. So to come back to those neuroscientific stuff, what did you find as kind of broad themes that made um, thinking about politics for the average person difficult and unoptimal in current situations?
2: So we have an expectation that people should
0: be able to do democracy. And
2: that's a bad expectation.
0: It's hard, as it turns out. It's hard.
2: I mean, the line I use when I talk about this is, we're no better equipped out of the gate to be good at political decision-making than we are equipped to hit a fastball. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea that you should expect... Yeah, I can do both really easily. Yeah, well, obviously everyone in this room can hit a fastball, (laughs) but... (laughs) uh, it basically, like if, you get, if I get to the plate, I've swung th- on three different pitches before. I, I mean, my brain has even processed right. that one ball has been thrown. But, you know, it, so it takes practice. So the problem is we have expectations that we aren't necessarily equipped to meet because mm-hmm. we don't have the chance to meet them. We're not encouraged or incentivized yeah. to meet them. We don't have the time. We don't have the skills. We don't have the resources. We don't have, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We live in an environment is there that's a too bit fast.
0: Of a, is there a bit of a runciman trap here? from people who, who don't read a lot of stuff on democracy david runsman a couple of years ago had the book called the confidence trap which mm-hmm. is about how democratic crises sort of precipitate themselves by each time one is solved you kind of give people the sort of baseline assumption that well we solved that one so this one couldn't be much harder until you run into one you don't and then your civilization collapses uh which perhaps climate change is the one kind of looking us in the face on that But is that part of it that there's a sort of like assumption that democracy is not something we actually need to worry about because it kind of takes care of itself? I mean, there. I I think there's a theory
2: that low voter turnout is, is is, for instance, right. Everyone just thinks it's great. Like things
0: are so good that I'm not going to vote.
2: Yeah, and and to some extent, if you look at turnout in Iraq and Afghanistan post-war, well, post-liberation, whatever whatever you (laughs) want to call it. Uh, po- you know, post-election, post-democratic elections—they're in the 80s and 90s, and our turnout is in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And yet, yeah. the stakes are much higher there, and it's more dangerous to vote. Yeah. But the stakes are higher, so we will do it. Yeah. I mean, I think to some extent that's true. We treat democracy like it's an achievement that we've unlocked, and mm-hmm. so we set it and forget it, and we don't have to worry about it. And we forget that a century ago, we were down to a handful of democracies. I mean, prelude to the yeah. sort of post-First World War before the and Second World War. And even the
0: degree to which we would today consider those full democracies is like really debatable. Oh, hugely do I yeah. mean,
2: I, I argue that, look, basically, liberal universal liberal democracy is a very, very new experiment. It's been the last sort of 40 years that everyone could vote everywhere, like especially in Canada, indigenous people, women. Yeah. Prisoners couldn't vote in Canada until the 1990s, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Already it's starting to show signs of, of wear and tear. You know, the, the Athenian... Uh, uh, Polity lasted, you know, the Athenian democracy about 186 years The Roman Republic lasted 500 years How long do we think this is going to last? So part of it is I think we take it for granted Which is, yeah, that's a problem Uh, But, I mean, the other issue is You know, we we shouldn't assume that we are by nature inclined towards democracy I would actually assume the opposite Mm Mm-hmm Especially at the sort of scaled up level of
0: Right, but not, not in the sort of Lobsterian <laughs> sense Of like hierarchy is natural And we almost submit to our lobster god kings No, I, no, think, no. I think that makes no. a lot of sense <laughs> Definitely not over, over the course of human I'm history I'm talking mass democracy, but yeah
1: um, If you accept the premise that only 40 years Have sort of been that, that type of democracy That we, we so covet or cherish Yeah then that leaves tens of thousands of years of not democracy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is a pretty compelling yeah. sample size. The
2: vast majority of human history is not democratic.
1: With at least you know
2: when we go back to hunter-gatherer societies, there's a different yeah. sort of that's a whole different sort of thing. But it, sure. but again, that is you know what's interesting. There's a great book called Against the Grain, and by James Scott. That's a really clever title. It is great because <laughs> it's, it's like agrarian politics and yeah. pod, but going back I, to the I was hoping thing. wood carving. No, I'm afraid not, or shaving. Uh, But it's, you know, he basically says, look, you know, we have these egalitarian societies. Then we become sedentary. Then we start hoarding grain. Then we have the emergence of a sort of class uh, distinction between the grain havers, the grain not havers. We've got something you can tax, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, you could argue that we tend towards some version of egalitarianism when we're in small bands that have to cooperate. Mm-hmm. But when you start to get away from that, when you've got to scale things up, the question is, does that scale? Does human organization scale well towards democracy or towards mm-hmm. not democracy? I'm not convinced it scales naturally particularly well towards democracy, especially at the level of the nation state. Sure. And in why in Joe Heath's book, Enlightenment 2.0, he sort of makes the point that look. At the level of the nation state, you've got to recreate allegiance every generation because it's yeah. so big and abstract. You're like, huh, why do I care? And if you've ever lived outside of of Ottawa, Toronto, <laughs> like <most> whatever, <laughs> yeah, like most of the country, you're looking like, oh, well, I don't really, you know, Canada, it's all the way over there. I was living in British Columbia and I had a sense of, oh, I, I could see how people feel removed from this nation state. Yeah. It's big and abstract. Well, in a Are sense, we? also,
0: Canada, like, is not a nation state in, like... The, the French, right. German, whatever right. sense of it. And
2: even they are now facing the challenge of yeah. of trying to rethink what that means in an era of, of mass migration and people who maybe grow up and have less allegiance to that, that very notion of a nation state. And, sure. And so this is the challenge. And, you know, we're, we're facing the sort of organizational challenges at the same time that we're facing challenges like climate change. And so to bring up, part of the reason I wrote the book was, well, how can you ensure democracies around for another century or two if you're facing significant challenges look what happened to our democracy in 2015 when we were trying to manage Syria Syrian refugee crisis. Now imagine something on the order of magnitude of 10 times worse than right. that.
0: Well, this is the same thing with uh, the sort of irregular border crossing thing where it was like, you know, 25,000 people, 35,000 people. ten you can correct me on this scale there.
1: Or... I, I lean towards the number 40. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, what I would say sort of flippantly was, like, what's this going to look like when Bangladesh is underwater, yes. right? Like, it's, yes. and you have millions and millions of people, like, fleeing yeah. climate change disasters. Like... Well, you know, Indonesia. Yeah.
2: This week, they decide they're, they're going to have to move the to capital. They're moving to Jakarta. They're going to go yeah. to this presumably they're moving up to the mountains uh, off of the island of Java. Now, uh, imagine what? How would we manage something
0: like that? I mean, we can barely get an LRT here, so I would imagine it wouldn't <laughs> be great. As long as what they're doing in the winter, right?
2: Yeah. But I mean, this is it, and, and so and imagine if that puts us in tension with the United States, for instance, yeah. as a as a partner and, and trading partner and defense ally. Now, what do you do? Especially if you're home to the world's fresh water and now you're growing corn in, in northern Saskatchewan, southern Nunavut, what are you gonna do about that? So, and the refugees are American, and they're fighting over the North, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. David is making
1: a compelling argument for greater defense investments. Well, this is my... I'm on this little defense <laughs>
2: investment kick. As a good social Democrat, I believe very, very strongly in our need to triple military spending. Spoken but,
0: like good, good very Blairite thing to say. There, well, so. it is, yeah, but I mean,
2: again, it, I mean, I'll be talking about this in the in the weeks and months to come, but um, you know, it, it is part of this question of how do you preserve something that you think is good if you think that your country is good and worth preserving. Sure. So but the broader I, I'm playing that same logic toward, in the book toward democratic institutions because I think they tend towards towards disintegration. Sure. So
1: they they follow the, the law of entropy
0: and yeah. like everything else.
1: Yeah. But within within that forty year window that we've identified, what is sort of the the pivotal point in there that has sort of flipped the switch um, so that democracies are now tending away from the end of history and towards disintegration. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Is is, is it tech? Is it Facebook? Is it the weaponization or the um, proliferation of psychology to influence political and marketing choices?
2: I mean, I think one of you is going to like this answer, one of <laughs> you isn't. Um, I, I think it's capitalism. Um, you know, I mean, it, it is... You know, the underlying problem is, I think, a problem of of equality and
0: decency. So this is the other big thing I had about this book. Yeah, there's no economics. Well, no, you do mention this, right? You do talk about the problem of equality, and I actually agree with you that it is completely central to the issue of democracy. I don't think you can have a functioning democracy if you don't have a sort of rough degree of economic equality, because people can turn their... Economic inequality into political power. Yeah, very and they easily, do. and they do, and, they do. Uh, and fair enough. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, it makes perfect sense. Why, those was are the they, rules. Those are the rules. Um, but yeah, I, I think you, you you do touch on this, and I enjoyed that. But I think you you run away from the conclusion a little bit, uh, and so you say, hmm, I think we need more equality. Yeah. So, and then th- that's kind of <laughs> no, <laughs> that's get, kind of where it goes. No, it's true. And, and I mean, incidentally,
2: this is one of my favorite book interviews yet because this is this is the proper discussion I've always want to have nice when we have the time so to to address both questions first is i mean i think part of the issue is that in a world in which there are many democracies but insufficient checks balances on i mean domestic policies but also global capital flows yeah which are used as a sort of bludgeon to keep the welfare state down Mm -hmm. or Uh, the concentration of wealth internally in countries and and, and therefore as we indicated power uh, it becomes very very hard to include people in the process and people feel like they aren't being represented and so that's one of the challenges so you know part of it is in the aftermath of the Soviet Union which was the sort of final end of the final third wave that ran from decolonization in the 1950s to democratization post-Soviet era um, those countries never really had a shot so i think the evaluation in the case of, of the end of history came too soon it was it looked like these countries had a chance of becoming liberal democracies yeah. but that never really yeah. took
0: i mean some of them did for like a generation right like hungary poland like really were quite pretty pretty vibrant liberal democracy slovakia for for a generation yeah I mean, and was, now are tending away from it
2: yeah, pretty quickly, and, and those those institutions and in pl- political culture didn't really take root. I think a mm-hmm. people thought that they would. Some countries it never really happened. Even the Caucasus, for instance, sure. and, and, and even Russia. I mean, Russia from well, day yeah. one was, yeah. you know, was probably. I, I don't. I'm not an expert, so I might correct me. It, it was fairly illiberal from day one. Sure. I don't think they ever. And I any
0: to to the equality point, I wonder how much the kind of like post Soviet. Um, shock therapy economic fire sale of of state assets contributed to that by you know it was great for the creating, mob yeah creating an it was overnight great for class all of billionaires. yeah exactly i
2: mean this is I, you know it's interesting i remember reading years ago joseph stiglitz on on um talking about the imf and one of the things that stuck with me was like the sequence of doing these things matters right Mm-hmm. There's a real difference between South Korea and sort of order of of economic development in South Korea versus which is a fascinating case, Latin actually. America. extremely fascinating.
0: Because yeah. people don't realize this, like South Korea 50 years ago was about as poor as Nigeria is today.
2: Post post second post Korean War it was the second poorest country in the world. Yeah, right and they'd now. been completely destroyed
0: in the yeah. Korean War. Also, Where's yeah, that well, in? which
2: was an opportunity. I mean, it was devastating yeah. and awful, but it was also a moment where they decided, okay, what are we going to do with this? And yeah. they were very careful. I mean, they've managed that transition both towards democracy I mean there yeah. really wasn't a democracy until the 1990s but I think 1992 or so and economically they were protectionist I mean still are heavily protectionist yeah. but were very very careful about how they sequence uh, liberalization trade liberalization um, but I mean the so which is an interesting study in in how you develop over time but but I do think the, the challenge is I mean how do you maintain a democracy in which you've got Global forces, economic forces, power forces that you can't possibly control. And when your country's looking around saying, "Well, God, what do we do with these workers that don't have jobs, or what are we doing with this trade policy we think isn't good for people?" And they're like, "Eh, "Well, these guys are doing it. (laughs) Why do you get to learn to cook?" Yeah. And so people started. People start to feel it materially. People also start to look around and say, "This kind of looks rigged. This doesn't seem particularly fair." And then how do you then turn around and say, "Okay, but don't worry, you live in a democracy." Yeah. I mean, people don't buy that, right? And so part of the challenge is, is is addressing that. And I I mean I agree, Marx was right. I mean you know capitalism. Marx was right, David. <laughs> <tends towards, laughs> <laughs> he's certainly right in most of his assessment. Capitalism tends towards tends towards monopoly and oligopoly and all you know oligarchy and and you see that in a lot of democracies. So what can we do
1: about that? So, so my inclination... But, but
2: just to finish that point real quickly. Yep. So the tech and the rest of it, I think, stacks on top of yeah. I mean, Facebook, and exacerbates the market problem. Facebook
0: is a, a capitalism issue in a very real sense, yes. right? Like they, they could say, okay, we're going to choose to make less money because we want to have a tool that people can use that doesn't have these like horrific oh, social I'll externalities. It yeah, sure. could do that, but... They, in a sense, can't because they are a publicly traded company that yeah. has to turn or a profit. Give you,
2: I'll give you a better example. YouTube, which is which is one of the most insidious social media companies and a vector towards radicalization, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, could hire more content uh, but it's moderators. But it's expensive. They could pay their people better. <laughs> yeah. They could also have auto It's a scale issue. It's a scale issue, sure. But yeah. they could also have autoplay off yeah. by default. They could you know they could do all kinds of things the to drill, but yes actually but one, of the,
0: one of the most hilarious things that they've proposed in the last couple of years has been on sort of controversial topics having a sort of wikipedia info box which is hilarious because wikipedia is the example of a completely anarchic democratic free nonprofit system working generally speaking really well yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's no. like please fix our shitty platform yeah yeah, yeah exactly
2: I mean this is it you know it's funded by people Mm -hmm. if the labor is done by people who want to do the labor it is free to use they're not spamming you with ads I mean just Jimmy Wales appearing every so often at the top But I mean, what's interesting is is Wikipedia, for instance, is what, what people thought the internet could be, yeah. the internet at one the, point. The digital like, commons, right? Yeah. A- and Facebook is what it is. Yeah. It's great. You know what it reminds me of? Is a little bit of that, You know, ever watch um, uh, Nixon, the movie Nixon, Anthony Hopkins? I have not. Loved that movie. No. There's this great scene where he's standing in front of a portrait of Kennedy, and he's like, he's just, like, he's deep, deep into depression, self-loathing clearly drunk and like Kissinger's probably had to take the button away from him a couple of times because <laughs> he wanted to do China and he looks at it and looks at Kennedy and says you know like when they look at you they see who you, they want to be and when they look at me they see who they really are just brilliant that's Great. Uh, the, you know Wikipedia is what we wanted the, the internet to be and Facebook mm-hmm. is what the internet has become Right, yeah. that's what it really is and that's the, that's the huge problem but the, the point being that all of this stuff stacks on top of, of a market problem so yes,
0: uh, because can
2: you have democracy without democratized, uh, democratized economy?
0: Ooh, I think no. I think, but no. that's I'm a democratic socialist. Yeah, I, I, think I think that so. that's like a precondition for. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm
1: wiggling my hand, and yeah, and, no, that's more than I expected. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, uh, that's actually a lot actually. of progress. That's a good day. Um, um, no, so my challenge for it is sure you can identify. Um, I have a list of countries s- you can just say the name of, thus
0: invalidating our <laughs> arguments.
1: Please feel, please feel free. <gasps> the the excesses of capitalism um, in instances like Facebook f- towards the corruption of democracy yeah um, but and with- monopoly wow that was something I never thought I'd hear him and say. monopoly that, yeah excesses of Facebook are well, bad well, for just
0: like, government just the the way you phrased that was hysterically non Ma- maybe it's because
1: I've had one beer <laughs> um, no give him, give him two more
2: he's gonna be, he's gonna be singing the international uh, by the time we finish these beers it's a rocking tune yeah.
1: I always thought it was pronounced internationale. I guess I guess. It's French. Why I mean, would there be a. I always, thought, I always thought it was Spanish for some reason. Okay. Span- well, we can deal with that. <laughs> okay. That's a different episode. I have quite That's a different
0: episode. He speaks French, is the worst part. Uh,
1: here we are. Okay, here we are. So, yes, un- unconstrained excesses uh, clearly problematic in virtually any system. Um, in, in capitalism, the, the same as any other uh things like facebook i think is where we're having the conversation today uh perhaps a little late about uh further regulation uh antitrust breaking it up etc 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 um i mean certainly we, i think it's there's a case to be made that we've gone too far and we've waited too long and that some of these tools have been weakened in our democracy tools that protected uh, our democracy over the past yeah a f- hundred plus years yeah. So is it simply a question of reinvoking some of these tools and that would put us substantively back on the right track? or do you I mean I, think, I, I know where I think if, no, inclined I mean, to go. I think if
0: we went from a, a sort of post- Reagan neoliberal framework to a more New Deal style uh, framework that would be in a very real sense a good thing mm. like that would represent a lot of good for a lot of people. I think, i mean so and to get sorry we're getting kind of far from the book here (laughs) no this is great but like my i hope it would do my whole like i think the insight that so to explain where i come from politically is that i came at the problem of democracy from a civic republican point of view where i think you need to have democracy to guarantee civil liberties and the things that we find important yeah i think you like you know people look at singapore and say oh well you know you can have you know market institutions blah 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 but you have this sort of authoritarian, authoritarian. government, and like it, that seems to work for people in Singapore to some extent. But I personally think that democratic self governance is a a in and of itself good, and you yeah. need it to defend civil liberties over the long term. Yeah. And from there, I, I sort of came to think that you can't have democracy without a degree of political or of economic equality. Which yeah. sort of as I as you, I sort of did more research into the kind of. Um, crisis of the 70s where you have basically a capital strike that broke the back of organized labor and instituted like grabbed a lot of political power Mm -hmm. said oh okay even like fdr style social democracy structurally doesn't deal with the forces are right against it and isn't stable and won't protect people as a long term. Well, especially in
2: a global market. I mean, part of the challenge it, Well, exactly. Is- the
0: internationalization of capital was a huge. This is the like problem. And, yeah.
2: and so Facebook's a good example of that. Is that even if Canada said, look, we're going to put reasonable regulations on Facebook? Facebook would say, "Well, all right, we're just going to go somewhere else. We don't care about thirty-eight well, million of you." Well, oh, you, you know, yeah. Google's a good example of that when well, we yes, said we yeah. were going to have some rules around ads and, and during elections. And Google's like, "Well, we're not going to run ads then." <laughs> what to give you, we don't. They don't care. This is the part of the problem is that is that to really take on Facebook, you would need to have sort of EU level. Yeah. And the EU is doing this. Uh, population, cloud, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and or cooperation amongst states. So it's pointing
0: yeah. into the EU, though, on, on Facebook. The day GDPR came into effect, the General Data Protection Regulation, people who aren't familiar, um, Facebook basically moved everyone outside of Europe into contracting with Facebook. In California right. rather than Facebook Ireland, where they had previously been, so right. they wouldn't have to comply with GDPR for all of those people outside the EU.
2: Right. What we need is an international treaty on this, right? Yeah. We, need, well, we, need, we need a lot of things. We need, <laughs> but I mean, part of it is that we need to have, you know, we need some solidarity across yeah. borders it's
0: internationalism, on this. Right. Like fundamentally is what you kind of have to have.
1: Yeah. But as you alluded to with GDPR and where the EU is a very useful institution, um, I mean, the EU covers millions upon millions of people. Yeah. And they've been able to do this reasonably effectively with GDPR. Um, So that covers your your Western European democracies pretty effectively. Um, In North America, you have various multilateral institutions. Um, And I mean, it's really three countries, three jurisdictions alone who often cooperate on these things. Well,
0: and to put it like the the US doesn't have a federal privacy law, it has now two state privacy laws um, for for private sector activity. Uh I don't really know what Mexico has to be honest. I have no idea. We have Pipita, which is fine, but as we sort of discussed last week, it's kinda of weirdly enforced and the yeah. price computer doesn't have the tools he needs. Yeah. And it doesn't uh, apply to parties. Yeah, and yes, which I've often said is a loophole that needs to be fixed. Yeah. Uh also in the US they have the FTC, which is political and kind of toothless yeah. and doesn't really do its job. But they gave yes, they gave Facebook a five billion dollar fine, but frankly, that's not actually that big a problem don't worry me.
1: we're giving him or we're giving them a hundred thousand dollar fine or a ten thousand dollar fine or yeah whatever it's five they, figures yeah.
0: is what the privacy commissioner is equipped with and he has to go through federal court first a proceeding that will definitely like it not even a question cost far 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 more than the eventual fine will so yeah cool. I mean,
2: part it's of good. it is i mean you know it's it's, <laughs> it's funny is you know the old line about uh during Embargoes. You know, you have oil companies trading with embargoed states, but the fine was less than the profit they make on the oil they sell. The oil, yeah. you know, it's a lot like that. It's if they're going, you know, the, the fines have got to hurt. Now, yeah. my understanding is that Facebook investors sort of took a bit of notice of the fines, and that those are something yeah. that they're taking seriously, and they're going to change a little bit because yeah. of that. What
0: we need is more of that. Yeah, though, and also, need pressure Facebook is done. really interesting. And I, I did say earlier that you know they have to obey, obey their, their investors, investors, but Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg actually has a special class of share. That means that he basically has more or less kind of an autocratic control over the company uh, that even investors can't really get rid of him, which is hilarious. He, he, and also, this sorry, totally rushing ahead, but he ha- he's compared himself to, like, Augustus, and he's like, someone
1: has to keep order. And it's like, okay, that's not weird. Was, was Augustus also a lizard, or is that... Uh... Uh, it's rumored. It's rumored. So, I, I was going to look back on, we... In my opinion, got a little off track because I mean, um, we um, do. among the tools I was proposing, we, we sort of shifted to talk about the privacy side of Facebook and GDPR. Um, Antitrust is substantially different than that. Yes, it is. Um, and it and rules. And we should do more of it. <laughs> and breaking it up, yeah, and so these are very different solutions for very different problems. the the privacy The privacy problem is sort of an aside to the, I the global monopoly problem. I
0: don't really. I, yes, so they are different problems. But I think if you break them up without fixing the issue of data collection and monetization and having sort of a wild west on personal information, you're not really fixing the like you're not fixing the issue that led to Facebook becoming really sure. big and blah blah blah. So you need to do both, frankly. And like the the problem in we have a super in, in the US, a super anti-trust uh, busting Supreme Court and judiciary mm-hmm. in general, a completely toothless FTC. Um, and in Canada, we have a very sleep of switch competition bureau that is extremely shy of taking on any big cases um, and doesn't really ne- too narrowly defines the. Um, And this is actually really ahistorical, but this is a whole other story, which I won't go super into. But antitrust has basically become a problem of, of price efficiency for consumers rather than anything beyond that, which it used to be. Antitrust used to be intensely political about, like, do we think this company is too big and is it bad for the country in a lot of ways and now we're really just on like does it adversely affect consumer prices yeah which is a super mistaken way to go but totally other it discussion. doesn't work in the digital age not work not well, especially product. zero price right. products right like theory
1: can we appoint mario dion to the uh, competition <laughs> bureau actually i would rule yeah that that is the field where we need him yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, he is the hero we deserve there for sure. So sorry, yeah. um, That's that's anything else on Facebook and and tech? I think that that's uh... no. I
2: mean, yeah. The big takeaway for me is that the problems of democracy are problems of equality and inclusion. And by the time you layer on the challenges of the market inherently to the tech era, yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. I'm not convinced that we can come back from this. I'm convinced that we should try. Yeah. I'm not convinced. You kind of got to, right? Like, that's You've got to try. You try. You've like, got to try. Like your life depends on it, because it does, it kinda, and you yeah. might as well. And it's not for. You know, we haven't reached the think point where the conclusion's foregone, but there's no guarantee that we can come back.
0: From that's this. like a thing I think about a lot. Me too. And it's not a crazy encouraging thought. No, it's not. But it. It is. Like, there's no reason why we would continue to have like widespread prosperity in the first world and kind of get to enjoy that forever like there's just like that's just not an ironclad law of a thing that has to happen
2: well and it's funny is that you know one of the things I try to get across in the book is it's it's worth thinking about how weird the hundred years that we've lived through are I mean historically speaking it's just it is it's unprecedented well like
0: unprecedented destruction followed by unprecedented prosperity right In right is very very strange yeah I mean
2: we're basically the, the speed of things has sped up we're not only going fast we're going faster and exponentially yeah. faster and that includes the speed of you know the amount of information we're consuming the amount of information we're developing the sort of decisions we have to make the complexity of it all yeah. the tech, the growth of technology but also the digging up and burning of fossil fuels right I mean that's you know, the, the, we're talking about things that have been buried for a yeah. very, 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 very long time. it you know gives honesty. me an enormous amount of hope,
0: David. Is the fact that the the format of the hour long podcast has become uh, very big again?
2: Well, so it's funny though. But this is what I mean. Is is I? Uh, you know, down, people boys. want. You know, we don't give people enough credit. I again to find a book hook to this. I mean, it, it, people aren't stupid. People aren't lazy. Books. People aren't. <laughs> When you give people a chance, they do remarkably well. And I think one of the arguments, one of the sort of sub-arguments of the book is that we ought to be giving people a chance, we ought to enable that chance yeah. through incentives and through resource transfers, et cetera, et cetera. Because my critique of, of liberal democracy is that it's ultimately shallow yeah. when it, because it doesn't enable people to take part in democratic life because we don't back it up with the things that we need. And that's not just wealth, that's also time, yep. skills, uh, incentives. And
0: so what do you get?
2: You get oligarchy.
0: Yeah. Well, you get democracy by the people who show up, which yeah. certainly is like, you know, people who show up tend to be very dedicated uh, and put a lot of time in and sure. do great work. But at the same time, like that really shouldn't be the, pre- the
1: precondition for democratic participation shouldn't be having to sit in endless meetings. That sounds like hell. No No one wants that. No. No. <laughs> Let me bridge this slightly from the structural critiques uh, to some of the policy or the prescriptions that you make in the book. Yes. Um, There are two things that jump out at me. Um, The first is your prescription of process, Mm -hmm. and then flowing into that slightly, you come around to citizens' assemblies. I thought Tories loved process. I am I'm, I'm very process okay. oriented. This is largely a process based podcast. If I could talk about process all day, I would. Yeah. It's like a large board game to me. Um, give me the rule God, book. I hate you. <laughs> it's such a <laughs> terrible thing to say about politics. It's <laughs> people's lives. <laughs> yeah, the rule book is no, it's not politics broadly, but like parliamentary politics sure. in Canada centers around the rule book and that's why I think we talk about the rule book and process so much here. <laughs> um, but one of your broader theme or not broader, more narrow themes, I suppose, is your love of process and the importance of process. Yeah, in- that's a broad theme. No,
2: that's
0: definitely yeah, a broad, broad
1: theme. Well, yeah, broad, not, narrow. Not as broad as the structural critiques, but right. one, of the, one of the cross-cutting themes is the the importance of process. Yeah. Um, and in that, you talk about how protest, or not protest, process um, inspires confidence, um, in democracy, do you, do you care to expand on that point a little bit?
2: Well, I mean, my, you know, the, the fundamental or the foundational argument of the book is that we will never agree on substance across the board. That's good. I, here's the thing: I don't want us to agree on everything all the time. It's you know, by the time you've reached that, you're probably closer to totalitarianism than than to democracy. I want disagreement, I want tension, but I want that to occur within a process that people trust and see as legitimate and that distributes outcomes equitably. So my concern is the current process doesn't do that particularly well. And so adopting a more robust deliberative process tends to help us get more equitable outcomes. Um, And we can agree on the process
1: even if we can't agree on the outcomes. So within our democracy, the singular prescription that stands out for me, uh, as alluded to, is the Citizens' Assembly. Mm -hmm. That within, you you cite the example of the Citizens' Assemblies uh, in British Columbia, once upon a time for the electoral reform question. (laughs) Ontario um, had one too, right? Yeah, in 97. That they tackled with, and you make reference to... Uh, a database of citizens' assemblies or of deliberative democracy projects? Well, it's a wiki, mostly.
2: It's called Participedia, and it's a uh, Democratic Innovations. But, I mean, the ones I highlight in the book, Ontario, British Columbia, and the G1000 in Belgium. I mean, these are done around the world. Belgium,
0: a, fa- a country that famously works well.
2: Well, they, they, it mean, holds the record, I believe, for longest without a, a government yeah. in Iraq, I think. A successful um, anarchy mm-hmm. state. But interestingly enough, it, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Somalia and Belgium are yeah. perfect, yeah. Uh, the moules are definitely better but, than one of them, I have to say. Yeah, you know, yes, that's right. You, at, Somalia at the beer. has a mean <laughs> <and laughs> uh, You know, but...
1: If Cantillon is the product of no, uh, no government, then sign me up. It's sort of theocracy, actually. Yes, it is.
2: Yeah. The, but the process, I mean, they work well. And, and I don't want to overstate the degree to which they solve our problems. And I don't want them all everywhere all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole point of having representative democracy, which I support... Uh, is that we can so we can live our lives yeah. and, and we can get what we want broadly speaking but you know go about our day to day business otherwise I think that's a very good system but CA's citizens always have salutary effects both on people and on government yeah. so I want to have them yeah. and I, you know my friend and colleague Peter McLeod who runs Mass LBP has this great line of like what if every citizen in the country had a chance once in their life to be a part of a citizens assembly I mean that wouldn't be particularly onerous but it develops skills. It builds trust. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things I like about them, for very specific political questions, is some issues are better left to people than to politicians. And I'm not talking about you know normal
0: issues. I'm talking things like constitutional issues. Yeah. Well, even like something, something. when people talk about like a Green New Deal, yeah. I think yeah. that would be a really fantastically great place Absolutely. to have something or, or exactly things that assembly. politicians
2: won't touch because yeah. it's too thorny. or They want to plan for the next thirty years and they don't want to get hammered for it. But I mean, the other thing is is you they also agenda set really well so yeah. the G1000 in Belgium was about agenda setting and the vision that I have, I don't talk about this in the book but it came a little bit after was imagine if we had a series of citizens' assemblies across the country, federated that would culminate in some national citizens' assembly to set federal um, agendas for, for the next X number of years not binding just to really say this is what people across the country care about and are thinking about and are talking about and want to see tackled, you could have that municipally you could have it provincially, you could have it federally it at least makes sure that there's a route to get yeah. things onto the agenda.
1: And so that's the, the, that's the core effect. So to, to talk very tangibly, I think largely how that's done um, in society today, to a large extent, falls, falls back to polling. Uh, PCO yeah. and... Polling garbage. The, the hundreds of pollsters <laughs> across Canada... David Coletto, don't listen to this. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm no, I mean, <laughs> um, sorry. No, fall, fall back I, to <laughs> there are the top ten lists of things that are pressing Canadian. Healthcare is always yes. among them. The yes. environment is up and coming, yes. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to a very real extent, political parties use these polls yes. and this data to do their own agenda setting internally yeah. and determine what they're going to prioritize and where their platform is going to be uh, more robust. Yes. So what is it, the difference between using polling, which is a representative sample of 36 million Canadians, and convening those Canadians, uh, a small group of those Canadians, to deliberate about it and then deciding on you know, a, a list that in all likelihood would be reasonably similar to what... What came well, out of the poll sample? Yeah, I mean, that's
2: a good question. And, and I, I, mean, I, I was joking about polling. I mean, I use polling data. In actually in fact, I use Abacus and David Coletto's polling data <laughs> routinely, and I quite, I quite like their work. And polling is uh, um, useful. And I, so I, I don't want to be too flippant about polling. Um, it serves a purpose. It's a tool in the toolbox. But the difference is this: Do you care about health care? Yes or no? Yes. How much do you care? Care six out of ten. Okay, that tells me that whoever I just talked to cares about healthcare quite a bit. That's it. That's the end of that relationship. That doesn't tell me. It doesn't give me details. It doesn't transform opinion. Mm -hmm. It doesn't build any skills. It could be an artifact. I yeah. mean, well, I mean it, also, what does it mean? Well, right. what is what I it, mean, do, right? Do it's I like,
0: want more funding for public, for healthcare? Right. Do I want to privatize healthcare? So this is what Alberta? the cross tabs are for. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I mean, but the crosstabs wouldn't even tell you that. Yeah, it but wouldn't. Like, it, but, you could sort know. of
0: assume if they're in Alberta and really care about healthcare and like, but, yeah. make, depends make what else you make A dollars depends Yeah, but maybe it's also a
2: snapshot in time. But again, I mean, the the difference between deliberation is that it's transformative is that it is about sitting down and and figuring out issues hearing from experts and this is the other thing It takes place the key to deliberation is is reason giving so you actually have to dig into reasons like why do i actually time on this yeah and so it's not just a snapshot of the moment so you know if you ask people during the snc scandal what they think about the power of the pmo and then you ask them a year later you're gonna get very very different answers sure or who is
0: who is the government, right? The-
2: well, that's right. So versus, you know, a moment where you can actually build a better yeah. sense of what's what through, through the deliberation. So, I mean, they do different things. Uh, polling are great at snapshots. They're great at getting general senses of priorities. The, the, that's valuable data. Um, but then if you want to dig into, okay, well, what does this mean and what are you going to do about it? That's where you want to deliberate. And you can come up with very specific things, too. So so that's what's useful for that. So they can exist harm, harmoniously,
1: so Canada has a tradition of doing something very similar-ish to this, um, but instead of citizens assemblies, it seems that we appoint for, uh, appoint former Supreme Court justices <laughs> to do yeah. royal commissions um, and other eminence gris of Canadian yeah. society to tell us what to think. Yes, um, the, white the, papers and royal the various commissioner or the various commissions white papers. Yeah. Um, traveling special committees. What yeah. was what was the uh, Quebec one on multiculturalism? Oh my, Bouchard Taylor. The uh, Bouchard Taylor, which worked out swimmingly. Which both uh, of them have been like, yeah, yikes, yikes. <laughs> 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 fuck that one up. <laughs> yup. But we yeah. seem to do this. That so, actually something, might have
0: something... been a really good thing to do a citizens assembly for. An in insight. I would,
2: but I mean, but this, so this is. I'm glad you asked that because I guess my point, uh, the heart of the book is this: the way that you do something really really matters. So if I go stop someone on the street, we we walk right now onto. Albert I won't reveal your secret location <laughs> no it's not Albert though and we say yeah, uh, so immigrants more or less what do you think <laughs> you know we ask someone off the, off no the top of the head walking yeah. down the street with no context do you want more immigrants less immigrants I mean it, that is highly sensitive to bias the effects yeah. of the day the lack of knowledge the fact that they feel like they maybe have to answer and they don't know or et cetera et cetera Ditto town halls. I think town halls are... I, I'm not a fan of them. I don't like them. I think they're a, a joke. I think de Tocqueville was wrong, I'm <laughs> a, to go back to civic republicans. You know, de Tocqueville loved the spirit of American town halls. I sure. wish you could could see some today. I, wish I wonder could, how
0: different they were, though, in fairness. Uh,
2: I, well, I mean, part of it, they were highly exclusionary, and yes. I think part of that was that... that they,
1: they didn't have Anderson Cooper as the problem. No, no. <laughs> no, no.
2: But I mean, so, but compare me stopping some random person on the street trying to get through their day and say, hey, immigrants, what do you think? Versus sitting down over the period of several weeks or weekends or whatever, maybe consulting experts, having to look someone in the face, etc., etc. Having a conversation about this that is based on reasons and data and exchanges between people who see each other as as equals or subjects, at least, rather than objects. And then all of a sudden you realize that, oh, you you get sort of different outcomes. And so the question is, okay, well, when you... Ask someone a question or you pull someone, what is it you're getting in that moment? Like, what's what's the takeaway there versus a deliberation? Process will change. It's almost like Heisenberg's principle, but for mm-hmm. democratic decision making. It's like, the process is, the way you do it, it's going to change the outcome. Yeah. So the question is, like, what is it that you want to get?
0: Well, in the same way that, you know, changing the wording slightly in a polling question, hugely affecting
2: yeah you know the old yeah. you know the old Kahneman there's, I talk about this in the book Kahneman and Tversky have this thing you know uh, as a, an experiment you know, there's a plague, 600 people are going to die. Then they test subject A as well, you know, 400 will, will be, will die. And are like, oh, I don't like that. Or 200 will be saved. And was uh-huh. like, yeah, that's great. Something I can't remember 700 700 people. Yeah. Like a, yeah. yeah, It's like saying, you know, you need a surgery, 90% success rate. You love it. 10% failure rate. You don't. The question is, you know, in, in a poll that's, you're sensitive to that. Yeah. In a deliberation, a lot less so.
1: So that, that answered my question around polling, but in regards to uh, Canadians or Canadian government government's penchants for technocracies um, and yeah. leaning on the Supreme Court justice to come up with the answer. Why is it that our governments, the, the liberal governments, is a huge fan of consultation? They've yeah. done virtually yeah. nothing but run consultations. Um, but I struggle to think of any I consultations wish. they've run in the manner um, in which you're advocating. For. Oh, electoral oh, reform. No, no one. D- oh. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so we can innovate they or? never paid my, they never paid my invoice
2: for all the time that they wasted.
1: <laughs> so I guess my question is, why is it that in a government so fond of consultation, they seem to shy away in a very practical sense um, from the type of consultation deliberative oh, democracy that you advocate for? Can okay. I give one too? The one I'm talking about, the, the process I'm talking about is
2: hard. and that process you're talking about is easy. Also they know better, the liberals
0: (laughs) No, I mean, you know
2: So Jenny Fuji-Johnson from SFU Wrote a great book called Democratic Illusion And in it she says, look, we've done a number of these Democratic participatory things Federally, provincially, municipally From nuclear waste management To official languages in in the territories In in Nunavut To um, housing Toronto community housing Um, No uptake You know, the problem is uptake so the difference between a consultation and a deliberative assembly is deliberative assemblies are diff- more difficult, mm-hmm. they take, they cost more money, they take more yep. time, um, and they typically involve politicians transferring power yeah. in a way that consultations don't. It's a little
0: <laughs> bit of a, you don't know what you're getting.
2: Yeah, so but, I, but, but just to finish that point real quickly, I mean, one of the, when I talk to politicians or, or policymakers more generally, staffers about this, I say to them, look, you don't have to believe me, but I'm going to tell you what I think is true. We can either democratize the economy to some extent and have participatory democracy now. We can do, or we can wait, and people are just going to come and take it. Yeah. <laughs> right? And if we wait, and they, we wait for them to come take it, it's going to be worse. I promise you. And the joke I use is like, you know, imagine Louis the Sixteenth and sort of seventeen eighty. Someone comes to him and says, "Hey, Louis, people are starting to get kind of pissed off. We should call the Estates General, maybe." Maybe do some outreach to the French citizens' uh, subjects. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> subjects is an important distinction. Yes, uh, you know, maybe we should bring them into the process. No, 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 uh, no. Okay, 1784. It's getting pretty bad. Maybe we should. No, 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 You know, imagine we could go back to France 1780 and democratize it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you wouldn't have quite 1789 and the point i'm trying to make is like look we are france 1780 and if we don't do something we're gonna be france
0: 1789
2: yeah you know it got literally pretty messy yeah
0: yeah no i mean by the way in case
2: that does happen i should say this very carefully the trick um to being in front of the guillotine is to be early in the morning you don't want to be you don't want to be under the guillotine later
1: in the day when the blade is dull yeah Oh, I thought it was sexually transmitted diseases. What you were going for? No, <laughs> what is, what, <laughs> why, it would it it you at that point? Point. This is very interesting. <laughs> no, no, no. So there's
2: there's these horror stories about. Um, I you know read about the French Revolution is that, you know, this was it, it was that you know the blades it was, the guillotine was an idea. Right, the guillotine was an idea of egalitarian execution, also Quain, very, you're
0: a quick, painless, humane, and right? humane, like yeah.
2: And and, and again, humane. If in you know, it comes to where you're doing one or two a day, when you're doing dozens or hundreds in a day, it would get really dull, and it would take sure. four or five tries to get someone's head Yikes. off. So I mean, th- but this is the point is I mean, is how barbaric <laughs> and awful things got. Uh, incidentally by the way you know when France started stopped using the guillotine was, something. yeah it was in the 1970s so yeah well
1: the, uh, the fun guillotine fact I have being a non-enthusiast of the guillotine I'm not an enthusiast uh, I'm just <laughs> in fact quite the opposite quite the opposite uh, it's just from the uh, the pop science psychology books is that there was a scientist who went to the guillotine um, and decided to use this as an experiment and said, when my head is chopped off, I will uh, continue blinking for as long as I possibly I think
0: can. That's one, Lavoise, one of the fathers of modern chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it was 20 to 30 seconds or something along those lines that Jeez. he was able to continue that may have been blinking. just like. It, it might be entirely apocryphal, but. Yeah. Well, uh, we, need so we need a sample. We need a controlled
2: sample.
0: Yeah, well,
1: they, <laughs> yes. they, they have tried. Yeah, anyway. Um, but, anyways, yeah, The,
2: but, but the takeaway there is, is obviously that, I mean, look. Um, up here it's it's easier to deal with this stuff earlier rather than later yeah. and if we think we can continue on this path we're going to be sorely mistaken
0: can i can i close on a note take us from 1789 to 1294 uh, and subsequent mm-hmm. centuries yes and the field of rutli in switzerland which is the world's <laughs> oldest functioning democracy there's some con- I, I, I mean yeah, I, yeah, there's yeah some contention, a, but right. i would i think the case is pretty solid for do, switzerland
1: do you want to elaborate more more clearly of what you're speaking of
0: well I was getting there to, okay I thought yeah. I
1: thought you were ending it there no <laughs>
0: what no that would be stupid why would I do that <laughs> like stay for the- part <laughs> two Harry Potter ends after chapter one. It's like, Oh, that was cool no um what they did for centuries through the middle ages after they'd sort of formed their, their Swiss confederacy of the several cantons uh is that they, every couple of years, they would take someone from all, all the cantons, they'd go back to this field at Rutley, which is where the original sort of compact was made. It's the Hunger Games And they would model. basically make every generation kind of, like, renew the compact, that they, like, knew that this was something they had to protect, mm-hmm. they had to, like, come back to it every once in a while and remind themselves why they were doing it, and why did we do all these meetings, and why do we do blah, blah, blah... Like, why don't we just let the Austrians install some Duke or whatever instead of throwing rocks at them and crushing their entire armies beneath avalanches, which they did several times. Yeah, uh, and that's they, they would have to just come back and remind themselves that so that's that's what they were about, and they just loved crushing Austrians beneath tons of rock that much, and that's what was really important. Well, we I mean, need, but we we need to come back to that moment of of what is that we're trying to do here. I mean, I don't crush yeah, Austrians between beneath landslides.
2: Is is that what we're
0: after? I mean. That's what they were after. That's what they were after. <laughs> but, I mean, it,
2: there was a Pew study a couple years ago where they asked people about this. And they were like, support for autocracy in the military was actually quite high. Oh, yeah. Support for technocracy was 50-50. There's an awful lot of people who are willing to throw away democracy
1: for quote-unquote role by the experts. Because they just, like, you really get yeah, like, it. Like, they can, want results. You can go to panels around Ottawa on, oh, a, week, yeah. on a weekly basis and I find agree. people ad- advocating for technocracies yeah, of, of one form or another in of their course. particular discipline. Of yeah. course.
2: And, I mean, this is why I, you know, as, a, as technically, uh, I, maybe a technocrat or something close to it, um, I want heavily checked. I mean, I think yeah. the moment in which we think that we should be, you know, devolving democracy or, or, or selling it to technocrats, remember, we should be doubling yes. down on it. Can
0: I turn us over to the far future? Yes. Where... Uh, the
2: year is 2045. No, far this be- this far, better far, be Polish moon base. We're all in the far, oasis. Far
0: further than that, this is uh, the timeline watch. of Dune. Where they they the Butlerian Jihad against the thinking machines because they turned over their thinking to the machines and decided they didn't like it after all. So there you go. That will be us. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but you know, the book talks a little bit about (laughs) it's a good
2: um, book, guys. Read dude. You know, by the way, it's also one of my favorite book covers of all time. Oh yeah, that's a killer. It is a very good book cover. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is it. Is it whenever you sort of fast forward through a lot of sci-fi post-apocalyptic stuff, it is highly technocratic a lot of the, the disaster yeah. moments are technocratic they're on to something yeah it's true this look at this is why I love William Gibson for instance oh yeah hell yeah can I tell a great story about William Gibson to close this out you absolutely can <laughs> do you know how he met his wife
0: oh I think I've heard this before but this you're gonna tell story. me anyway
2: I, when I went to Japan a few years ago I went on I took I got an interview a uh, subscription to the Paris Review and I read most of the interviews and William Gibson tells a story like, he was in Toronto and he was like living with a guy and this guy goes home with a woman one night and Gibson, for whatever reason, goes brings them coffee the next morning after these two have spent the night together. And so he gets in and it's like this guy's in bed with this woman and brings them both coffee or something. And that was the woman he met and married. <laughs> well, he didn't marry her there, I
0: imagine. Who
2: knows? It's William Gibson. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, and with that vision of sort of the, the tech-fueled corporate-run dystopias of William Gibson's Near Future... Uh, we'll close this out. Thank you, David Moskrap, once again for joining us. Mm-hmm. You are welcome. Really, anytime. These are always very that's, fun conversations.
2: Very nice having me. Thank you.
0: And uh, yeah, for everyone else, uh, until next time. We had some good beers. There were a bunch of them actually, so we'll skip that this time. But we love beers. Rob Silver, day. by
2: the way, says that you guys must have. I, I just I saw this on the internet a second ago because I tweeted a photo of the beers. He thinks you guys have a, a much much have a have a much bigger budget than before. Did you guys stiff him on some beer?
0: Um. No. Well, we didn't. recording at home uh, when we did that. We were recording in his office <laughs> yeah. when he was there. Everything's about noon hours, Class yeah. later. It's a little awkward. Rob, we're happy to get you a beer anytime. I he, he deserves
1: <laughs> he deserves lots of beers. That guy. It, sh- it should He's- be noted that actually, uh, David brought the beers today, which is uh, a f- a first for our guest, but hopefully not a last. That's true. Kevin Milligan, you're
0: on notice. Your pepperoni sticks have been uh, <laughs> have been upstaged. The gauntlet has been thrown. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, and have a great week.